Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant. This is Dr. Bill Sinyard. We are on our journey through Romans and looking, uh, unpacking, digging up all of the Pauline microaggressors that are scattered throughout the text. Uh, and look, there's a loads of them, particularly in Romans 5 through 7. I think Paul is, for, to make a point, I think he's picking fights with people in a positive sense. I think he wants to make changes. And to do that, he's got to step on idols. And so we're just picking up on that and using a term that we use today, microaggressions. Now, you can understand in this particular one, Romans 6, verses 17 to 23, where the microaggressors are, because he's talking about slavery and obedience, uh, obeying, obey. And there we go, man. That's explosive IEDs. And I get it. Those words have been used as bats. I understand. Uh, But let's move forward. God loves us and loves me, so don't shoot the messenger. In our culture, 21st century United States, our tidy whities get in a nasty bunch whenever we hear those two words, right? Obey, obedience, and slavery. They're microaggressors. They're often dangerous terms. Uh, They can cause... Uh, fear cycles, cortisol, there can be offensive terms, they can hurt people, they can be used to hurt people, and they have been used in the past that to make certain individuals and groups of individuals feel unsafe and disrespected and in their place. I get it. Um, and our context in using that is typically American slavery in the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries, as well as the nasty dehumanizing racism that has continued on. And we whites are generally embarrassed and ashamed of the history, honestly. And, you know, we would rather not talk about it anymore, right? That's that's human, and we got to stop that, but I get it. And blacks whose families and themselves are still in many ways suffering from slavery and obedience are rightly triggered when we use the word slavery and obedience in a sentence or a paragraph or a book. I get that too. So my interest here is not to fix our history and to try to get people to get along, but it's actually to get into Paul's sandals in the first century Middle East. This is just good exegesis, right? So no offense to folks today. Uh, You know, I mean that. All right, having said that, I'm sure... That that last paragraph triggered people. <laughs> See? But I want to segue to Paul in Romans 6, where he's going to use those words rapid fire to communicate something that's actually wonderful, that's actually miraculous and grand, and we don't want to miss that, right? And we'll miss it unless we uh, intentionally break out of our own context for a moment. So I'm begging you to play along. Please, you can be offended later. You can write me emails, letter. I'm okay with that. All right. So Romans 6, 16. This is Paul, not me. <laughs> Don't you know that when you offer yourselves as to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? So, I mean, some have even said Paul is actually condoning, you know, uh, 19th century slavery, right? 
But no, when you see the word slave and Paul or in the first century Roman Empire, don't start with the 19th century American institution of slavery in, in your brain. In general, in general, not exclusively, not all the time, but in general, certainly compared to uh, our institution of slavery, slaves in the Roman Empire were treated much more humanely and sometimes even honorably. Again, not all, but in general, for many, it was a very honorable position. And we'll talk about that. Paul is most likely not speaking of enslavement where men and women and children were kidnapped, abused and dehumanized. That would be absurd for his argument. It wouldn't make any sense. That's why we get it so confused. Many were indentured regular citizens who went into debt and had to, hear it quotes, present themselves to their debtor to be their slaves for a time until they could work off the debt, meaning that they could have even been skilled citizens who shifted from working for one employer and, and partly themselves to another employer, right? Their master to pay the debt owed, meaning, of course, that they were still being paid, right? Uh, unlike what we uh, had in the United States, it wasn't based upon your country of origin, your color of skin. The makeup of slaves in the Roman Empire represented a broad cross section of cultures and the world's known populations and tribes. Epitaphs record at least 55 different jobs that a slave could have. Barber, butler, cook, hairdresser, uh, farmer, handmaid, uh, wet nurse, nursery attendant, teacher, secretary, accountant, even physician. Now, I'm not saying life was great for a slave. I'm not. All I'm saying is that the institution Paul's talking about is very different than the one, the caricature that we have. And there was abuse, right? Uh, historically, we, we know of some. There were bad slave owners, and Paul would in no way be justifying that. In fact, if we look at Paul, the slavery that he has to be referring to, it just makes sense, was not the person who was enslaved because they were captured in war or kidnapped or born into a slave context. No, the, this person would have actually indentured themselves, submitted themselves, right? Verse 16, and most likely this had to do with a person who had run up a debt they couldn't pay. And here's one article, quote, Debt could then lead to a form of serfdom, which the Latin names nexum, which is debt slavery, debt slavery. The insolvent debtor was convicted and awarded to his creditor to work on his land. He could not be sold. He was not slave merchandise. He remained within the territory of the city, unlike the slave merchandise, who was almost never a slave in his own region and was still considered a citizen, but had lost his freedom, close quote. All right? So this is what Paul's likely talking about to make his case. Again, he's not condoning slavery. He's making a point. He's using a, a metaphor. So in that context, we can understand obedience a little bit better, uh, obey a little bit better. Uh, in the Greek, hupakuo, uh, here's uh, one blog. This Greek word is used widely throughout the New Testament, the word is really made up of two words, hupo, meaning under or beneath, and akuo, meaning to hear. Thus, the meaning of the word could be stated as to hear under. It carried with it the thought of subordination or the recognition of authority and wisdom, but it's the attitude of hearing. Right now, I would add being willing to obey, desiring to obey. So this attitude and motivation is hardly gained by an abusive master-slave relationship. Right. Where obedience is enforced by fear of punishment 
or public shame. Uh, this uh, nexum is rather uh, it's rather put on the responsibility of the nexum slave to be willing to hear. It's a motivation and respond to the master's desire to want to serve the master, to be right with the master, right? To hear under. All right. So anyway, so Paul lays out a contrast. And looking at the modern translations, which seem to be over-influenced by the caricature of our own slavery experience in America, they seem to imply that the slave better be obedient or else. If you don't strictly obey the letter of the law, you might face death. And if you stick to the letter of the master's command, you would be seen as right, and you can survive, though you may have lost your dignity. But no, that, that's just not suiting Paul's argument. And again, that's where we get confused. It, it seems that Paul is saying that the slave actually has a choice. They can pick the death of sin, right, verse 17, or the right of obedience, and, and uh, so whether death of sin or into righteousness of obedience, verse 17. And later he uses similar language saying that, that you have become, passive tense, slaves to rights. So you've, you've, you've been made the latter anyway. So before I unpack what I think Paul might be saying, another word definition in context could help. Dikaiosune, it's a noun, uh, which is translated right, righteous, just, righteousness, we under we misunderstand today. It's most often today speaking of actions. You do the right thing. Uh, you're a good boy, good girl. You do the law. You obey the master's command. You're by definition right or righteous. So the righteousness of or to obedience that makes sense, right? So if you if you're righteous, you obey. But at its core, this is so much better. Takasuni is relational to be right with someone. We use that phrase. So if you and the other in our strong, good, trusting, loving, mutually beneficial relationship, even though one may be the boss and one may be the employee or, or master slave, you can have a right relationship. You can be right with each other. And the bond is right, righteous. And of course, it necessarily leads to pro other actions. Why would you do harm? Why would you undermine the other person if you're right with them? And they're right with you. But it is about the core spirit of relationship that leads to new motivation that is pro-other. To be righteous, biblically, then, is to love others and love God. Does this make sense a little bit now? It's relational. And here's the opposite. A slave who is obeying their master in order to avoid punishment or the master's wrath or to earn and manipulate a better situation and favor is foundationally, biblically, not righteous. Right. They're doing right, but their motivations off. They are not wholeheartedly serving the master out of a right motivation. Look at verse 17. So <clears throat> Paul is not saying that we are to serve God in the way that some slaves serve masters in order to avoid punishment. Paul is saying that a righteous slave actually wants to. They're motivated to hear their master's heart and they actually want to. They're motivated to comply. Because they're good with that person. They're right with them. And in so doing, they, they, they don't lose their humanity. They don't lose their dignity. Actually, it's a healthy bond. It's a relationship. And they're expressing loving, right humanity towards the other. It could actually be very helpful and secure. So then, Paul, in verse 17, I think, is saying to the debtor-slave, Remember, you were a mess, when your master accepted your wish to be in this safe, respectful relationship where your ultimate good is in play. 
And again, think Mideastern, not American slavery, right? Before, you were in debt. Uh, you were subject to angry people. Uh, you were subject to harmful laws and magistrates and revenge from those that you were indebted to. And you ran to this master for safety, security, and hope in a new life. Your previous life, we, let's call it death of sin, because uh, your choices, your actions led you into, into slavery, into death. But now you can choose to be submitted to this new relationship with your heart and motivation. And why? Well, look, it's good for you. Certainly compared to the last one, it gives you structure, it gives you foundation, it gives you a sense of being right that you didn't have before. It gives you three square meals, right? It gives you a right relationship where you can thrive under the love and tutelage of your master. Again, an ideal situation. So why would you fight it? Why would you grow bitter and resentful? Why would you look back to where you came from, where you were saved from? Because that wasn't freedom. It's absurd. That was death of sin. That was the sin of death. Remember the grace you were under and lighten up, chill, rejoice. Now, this interpretation... I get it. You, some of you are thinking this. It only works big if, if the master was actually good and generous and righteous and caring for the nexum, the indentured slave, and truly wanted his or her well-being and growth and security. But that's the, the bridge that Paul's going to make to your relationship with God, right? So I, I think that this situation, this context is the way it's got to be, or Paul's argument falls to pieces. And by the way, Paul is going to shift to a marriage context in chapter 7. We'll pick that up in a couple of podcasts. And look, just to make sure we don't misinterpret this one, which we've done already. What do we know? Historically, we've done. So Paul's not supporting, to be clear, 19th century institution of slavery. He's not supporting modern racism. God forbid. He is saying that not all freedoms are equal. There are so-called freedoms that lead to death and dying. Think of an addict. They're free, meaning they can make choices to do whatever they want, but they're not free, right? They're a slave. Um, so in, 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 in the case of a Middle Eastern slave, they're slave to debt, and yet they're free citizens. So then there are people who are gainfully employed who must live according to policies of the corporation or their boss, and they can be employees in good standing, supportive of their supervisors who have their best interests in mind. They can grow. They can feed their family. They're slaves to righteousness, and they're in a good place, and they can thrive and grow. So they're not independently free, but they're free. Paul's arguing that before God came along and rescued us, we weren't free. We were slaves. We were slaves to multiple addictions, to idols, to other deities. And then God set us free from those things and placed us in a new relationship where we can thrive. We're now sons and daughters of God. It's a great right relationship between him and us. God adores us all because of Jesus. And in this right relationship, righteous relationship, particularly when we begin to feel, really begin to feel the height and width and length and depth of the love of Christ for us, because we... Uh, access power of God through the Holy Spirit in our inner being, right? Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. We can experience momentarily that we're in a great place. We're in an, an envi enviable place, and our new heart has a new motivation where we actually want to respond. Um, we want to follow the dance that God's leading, but we don't demand to lead the dance in our freedom. And we just want to honor him. We want to be right with him. We want to respond with love and devotion. And we are slaves in a new right relationship. 
And so for Paul, then, if all that's true, it would be absurd. It'd be it would be insanity to want to return back to pre-conversion days of addiction to other paths that didn't serve us or didn't love us well and call it freedom. See, then we were looking for love in all the wrong places. And the results, honestly, hit or miss, right? It was a true Russian roulette. Maybe we we got a hit once out of 10 times, but that hit formed a pattern, a habit. But now we're in a stunning relationship. It gives us new motivation, a new heart, and, and we begin to love and feel love. Why go back? Well, it's part of our human nature. It's part of our bad wiring in our midbrain. Remember the freed uh, people of Israel from Egypt after a few days in the desert? They wanted to go back to Egypt? Well, I get that. Paul sums it up in a passage that many of us are familiar with, and we apply this passage to salvation, right? And check, that's true, but it's equally true and probably more true and more what Paul had in mind in that it's appropriate for our ongoing reminder of what we have now and how to grow a reciprocal motivation to want to please God and to want to love others. All right, here it is, Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. That's present tense, right? But the gift of God is eternal life, present tense, in Christ Jesus our Lord. We could choose. It's all paid for. We can't mess it up. Believe me, I've tried. But today we can enter into, we can lean into today, one of those two experiential paths. So we can insanely, and by the way, often do want to go back to our so-called freedom, right? All the good times we had before we were adopted into royalty. And, and you know, we can choose to look for significant security belonging anywhere else but in the arms of God and be free. Or we can ask for power from God through the Holy Spirit in our inner being to really experience what we were looking for, the height and width and length and depth of the love of Christ for us as we are. And that's the essence of this righteousness, this relationship given to us, earned for us by Christ. This is what we're looking for. This is the gift of God that makes us begin to feel eternal life. The word is Zoe. This is it's a quality of life, not just quantity. And to be clear, we can feel it just a little bit more today. And Paul is shocked. I mean, after everything we just said, you can see why Paul is shocked that anyone in their right mind would argue that our former life was better than now. But every day, I struggle between the two. I do. There is something wrong with my brain. I, I get that. I think it's called humanity. In the next podcast, Paul will call it Sarks, the flesh. And we'll talk about that. All right. So thanks for your patience. I'm assuming you were patient with me and willing to hear the word slavery and obedience without tripping. Um, so now uh, we can go back to the American status quo if you'd like. <laughs> well, do you want to experience the good stuff more, this relationship, this righteous relationship? Uh, this is why we designed The Dance, www.the-dance.org. It's the only online experience of this love, this gospel of God that's targeting those areas of the brain, my brain, your brain, that have been damaged by destructive uh, slave relationships that we spoke about. These strongholds are very powerful and very hidden. Um, it, they make me even more of a slave. The power of the Spirit motivates a new kind of willing 
a motivation to comply, to submit, not harsh identity sucking obedience. Just, I mean, just trust us. This is what Jesus purchased for you, but your brain just the way it's wired is not going to let go of the former path. No judgment, no shame. It's your human. Look, the dance is easy to do www.the-dance.org. Very little risk on your part. No judgment. I mean, it is so shame-free. Seven-station, vital presentation of the gospel for you. And matter of fact, we're actually targeting your midbrain, the the place of addictions, the place of, of fear management. As you are today, it's under two hours. There's a fee, a fraction of a counseling visit. And even then, it's satisfaction guaranteed. Nothing to lose. Think of it as baby steps to get off the addictive horizontal spectrum the, to which you no longer belong and up to the, the place, right? The grace united with him, baptized in his death, living in a new life, no longer slave to sin, uh, not under law, newness of life box that Jesus has already purchased for you. So at the end of the day, wouldn't you rather know that more? And hear God say, you are my beloved son or daughter with whom I am well pleased. All because Jesus did it for you 2,000 years ago, and it'll never change. Right? Well, uh, Paul's not done in this uh, 5, 6, 7 rant. And he's going to shift over to a marriage metaphor next time. And boy, have we historically mishandled that one. Another Romans microaggressor for sure. So take heart child of God. Do you ever hear sayings make their way through the culture and the church that seem nice in theory, but are actually theologically problematic? My name is Shara Donahue, and I'm the host of The Bible Never Said That, a podcast where we examine these popular sayings under the lens of biblical truth. We cover sayings like, God won't give you more than you can handle, time heals all wounds, and follow your heart. We also spend time exploring how people use Bible verses out of context. If you want to grow in discernment and truth, join us and subscribe at lifeaudio.com.